This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Peter Manso discusses his new book, The Apparitionists, a tale of phantoms, fraud, photography, and the man who captured Lincoln's ghost. Then PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed recaps New York Comic-Con. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. We have a very, very big number one, number one with a bullet, and that is Origin by Dan Brown. It sold 145,000 copies out of the gate. However, um, for Dan Brown, that's not such a big opening. Right. So his uh, his last book, which came out four years ago, uh, Inferno, sold approximately 369,000 mm. copies. In its so. first week. This is less than half that. So uh, some interesting questions there about whether Brown's star is beginning to finally fall, but uh, still obviously a very big deal. Right. So Origin yep. is the fifth book in his Robert Langdon series, and uh, we don't have a review of it yet, but uh, this book is pretty much continuing these questions that Brown likes to raise about uh, connections between mysteries of life and mysteries of religion and mm -hmm. mysteries of history. And uh, in this case, according to the jacket copy, uh, Langdon, who's a Harvard professor of symbology and religious iconology, is trying to answer some of the questions of human existence. Mm. So uh, it's a very Dan Brown book. Yes. Uh, if you liked yeah. his other books, you're likely to pick this one up. But uh, it is quite striking looking at the difference between this and the numbers for Inferno. Yeah, it is. So that's at number one. And uh, that is still the biggest opening week of any novel mm -hmm. published this year, as uh, Doubleday spokesman took right. pains to point out when yeah. Publishers Lunch asked him about the, the difference in the numbers. Uh, moving down the list, at number five, we have Merry and Bright by Debbie McComber. Uh, as I was saying, October is the month for Christmas books, and right. uh, this is her Christmas romance. McComber is a renowned and uh, often on the bestseller list, author of romances and heartwarming family stories. Christmas is her time to shine. Yep. And it's no surprise that her fans have put this at number five. Uh, we don't have a review of it up yet, um, but uh, it's uh, pretty much the family story that you have come to expect. It involves baking cookies and being kind to strangers and all of those lovely Christmassy things. Moving down the list a little bit at number six, Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan. We gave this a starred review, calling it a splendid novel. Uh, Egan's obviously the Pulitzer winning author of A Visit from the Goon Squad. And uh, this book is set in 1934 Brooklyn at the beginning, in which uh, a man who's trying to support his family finds work ferrying bribes for a corrupt yeah. union official. And he gets involved with the underworld, ends up vanishing, and then the story continues through his children and uh, their, their stories in the Second World War and beyond. Uh, we say in our review that the novel is tremendously assured and rich, moving from depictions of violence and crime to deep tenderness. And the book's emotional power, once again, demonstrates Egan's extraordinary gifts. Mm. That's at number yeah. six. Number 11, we have a tie-in book of sorts, Star Wars from a Certain Point of View. This is a little different from the typical novelizations that have been coming out around the release of the new Star Wars movies. This is an anthology of stories, and these are uh, from minority and marginalized and side character perspectives, mm. written by an amazing all-star cast of authors, um, including... Daniel Jose Older, Nettie Okorafor, many names that will be very familiar to science fiction fans. And Daniel, um, who we've had on the show. Daniel, who we've had on the show. I'm delighted to uh, to see him on here. Um, 
some of the other names that people may recognize, uh, Meg Cabot, uh, Adam Christopher, and also Mallory Ortberg, uh, famous from the website The Toast, who now mm, writes the, right. the Dear Prudence advice column. Uh, <laughs> but she's a wonderful comedic writer with a, with a very wry and sometimes dark twist. Uh, I'd love to see what she would do with a Star Wars story. Oh, it sounds great. And it's a wonderful, it's great that a book like this is on it. I mean, from minority perspective, perspectives which you obviously don't get in the in the Star Wars uh movies. And some of this is, and it, these are characters uh, who have been kind of sidelined within the Star Wars context. So mm-hmm. uh for example, um there there's just stories from the perspective of stormtroopers uh, oh, right. or you know the nameless X-wing pilots uh people whose stories don't usually get the spotlight. So very exciting to see this at uh, at number 11. Excellent. And we don't have a review of it as we don't usually review right. tie-in books, uh, but all the early press I've heard has been very positive. Uh, moving down at number 15, we have Winter Solstice by Ellen Hildebrand. This is her 20th novel. Our review says it's very engaging and it follows the Quinn family and their loved ones as a patriarch succumbs to cancer. There is a lot of family drama going on in here. I'm not even going to try to <laughs> summarize it. Um, you know, lots of marriages and remarriages and soldiers coming home for more with PTSD and the healing power of love. And uh, there's, there's a great deal going on. Um, it's, uh, it's probable that this is one for uh, Hildebrand's fans uh, who you know, sort of have a handle on some of this already. But uh, we say that Hildebrand is uh, an engaging storyteller who keeps the reader riveted and her characters come alive on the page. Though she's skilled at building up tension, uh, some problematic situations are sometimes too easily resolved. But readers who enjoy bittersweet family stories will be mm. charmed. Nice. Uh, just below that at number 16, What the Hell Did I Just Read by David Wong. We gave this a starred review. Wong has a gift for titles. Uh, his first book was John Dies at the End, which was followed right. by This Book is Full of Spiders. So if you pick up a David Wong book, uh, you have a sense of what you're going to get. And he's uh, also one of the the people behind the website Cracked, which uh, is full of strange facts and bizarre humor and uh, raunchy fun. And Great. so uh, this book, as I said, we gave it a star. It's the third book uh, of the adventures of a protagonist whose name is also David Wong. <laughs> and uh, it's we say that our in our review that it's filled with the humorous horror that readers have come to expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and David and his girlfriend and his friend are still living in a town called Undisclosed. So they're referred to for <laughs> privacy reasons. And they've had previous brushes with the weird. They think everything is fine. And then they get pulled back in. Uh, we say that while the story gleefully wallows in absurdity, thoughtful themes of addiction, perception, and the drive to do the right thing quickly emerge beneath the vivid and convoluted imagery. And the plot's rapid pace holds the reader's attention to the truly bitter end. Great. That's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. All right. So nonfiction, we have our, our highest debut is at number three. This is We Were Eight Years in Power, an American Tragedy by ta Coates. Coates, who's the National Book Award winner, uh, collected eight essays, which were originally uh, published in the Atlantic magazine between 2018 and 2016, which was basically marking the early optimism of Barack Obama's presidency in the 150th anniversary of the end of the Civil War. We say that the uh, though the essays are about a particular period, Coates' themes reflect broader social and political phenomenon. We say that it's this timeless timeliness in, akin to George Orwell or James Baldwin that makes Coates worth reading again and again. Number eight, we have Daring to Hope, Finding God's Goodness and the Broken and the Beautiful by Katie Davis Majors. Uh, this is along a trend of religious theme titles we have on the bestseller list. And Majors, who, who wrote a book called Kisses from Kate, recalls the triumphs and tragedies she faced as an adoptive mother and missionary in Uganda. She talks about her adopted daughter's biological mother took took her back, and she questioned God as she pleaded to for him to bring uh, her daughter home, and God did not give an answer right away. We say the book is both sorrowful and encouraging, with love as the driving force behind hope. Majors tackles her doubt about her faith boldly, and thoughts can serve as a reminder that God, quote-unquote, breathed life into us so that we could breathe life into others. And that's at number eight. 
Uh, number 10, the power of moments. Why certain moments have extraordinary impact by Chip and Dan Heath. They're brothers, uh, co-authors of Decisive and business school professors at uh, Stanford and Duke. And they take on the challenge of teaching readers how to foster memorable moments for themselves and others. But we say they fail to address the question of authenticity that their prescriptions raise. We say the Heaths don't address whether these carefully stage-managed experiences that they suggest throughout the book can ever feel wholly genuine, leaving a gap at the center of their book. Uh, at number 11, we have a biography of Martin Luther. The subtitle is The Man Who Rediscovered God and Changed the World by Eric Matejas. We say this is a highly readable, fast-paced biography of Luther with some peculiar omissions. Um, we say that the book downplays some of the more contentious aspects of Luther's work, which includes his diatribes against Jews, uh, which is given fewer than 10 pages. Uh, we, we do say that general readers may enjoy the cheerful tone of Matejas's uh, writing however. Uh, so that's at number 11. Number 16, a cookbook. This is Yotam Adelenghi. Uh, no surprise that uh, this book is on the list. Uh, it's called Sweet. It's a starred review written with Helen Goh, uh, who's been a longtime collaborator of uh, Adelenghi. Uh, this is his latest effort after Nopi. And uh, here he displays the signature dishes that have earned the London restaurateur legions of fans and a monthly column in the New York Times. So there's lots of fun stuff in here. There's cylindrical cakes baked in cans. There's a black currant puree with buttercream. And um, just a lot of fun stuff here that people are obviously buying. That sounds delicious. Uh, we do have one book here at number 18 that we have not reviewed. It's called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President by uh, Bandy X. Lee. And that's exactly what it is. So uh, it's an assessment by, um, by these uh, mental health experts about Trump. And finally, at number 23, a starred review, From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find a Good Death by Caitlin Doty. Doty is a mortician, and uh, she catalogs rituals and cultural practices surrounding death from all over the world, and what we say is a fantastic memoir. Her skillful book will encourage debate on philosophical and moral preferences for posthumous care. And that's what we have on our bestseller list. All right. Well, it's quite quite a variety there. It is. We've got everything there. We've got death. We've got religion. We've got sweets. And we have Trump. And um, I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Peter Manso tells us about 19th century efforts to speak with the dead. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ted Genoways, author of This Blessed Earth, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Peter Manso on the line. His new book is The Apparitionists, a tale of phantoms, fraud, photography, and the man who captured Lincoln's ghost. Hi, Peter. I'm so glad you could join us. So glad to be here with you. Thank you. So tell us about the man who captured Lincoln's ghost, William H. Mumler, whose spirit photographs are the subject of your book. Well, William H. Mumler is a figure from American history who's mostly been forgotten. And he's part of a moment immediately after the Civil War when spiritualism, the belief that one could communicate with the dead, was really on the rise. In part because of the great mourning that the nation was going through after the Civil War. And also in a surprising way because so many new technologies had convinced Americans that the ability to communicate with the dead was really right around the corner. So in the 1860s, William Mumler began taking photographs of people in his, his studio, first in Boston and then New York, and he would convince his subjects that he could also photograph the souls of their dead relatives and friends. So after you sat for your photograph in his studio, he would give you the photograph, and there would be a blurry image behind you, and he would convince you that it was someone that you recognized. So he carried on with this for a number of years in the 1860s until he was arrested for fraud in New York City in 1869. And the interest around this fraud trial was such that it covered around the country, and he really became this infamous figure at, at that time. So you talk about spiritualism in the 19th century, 19th century America. Uh, take us back and set the scene for us. What was going on then? Well, spiritualism begins a little bit earlier. It begins just before the 1850s with uh, three sisters in upstate New York, uh, known as the Fox sisters, uh, three women who 
We're living out in, in rural New York in a farmhouse, and apparently through boredom began experimenting with making uh, tapping and knocking sounds in their parents' farmhouse. Uh, they first convinced their parents that these were ghosts trying to communicate from the great beyond, and this quickly spread around the country. Uh, they traveled around uh, to, to do demonstrations of how they could communicate with the dead. And as surprising as it seems to us now, this really sparked a religious movement. Uh, people believed that they could communicate with those who had passed on, and the Fox sisters began a, a real um, a craze for finding other spiritualists, others who could communicate with the dead in various ways. So that was the, the religious context into which Mumbler came. But there's also this technological context in which the great innovations of the 19th century, think of the, the telegraph, um, of electricity, of photography, they were so rapidly convincing people that um, everything they understood about the world was changing. And so that if it was possible to communicate across hundreds of miles through the telegraph, through pulses of electricity, why wouldn't it be possible to communicate across that greatest distance from the living to the dead? So in a funny way, this rise of technology, which one would sometimes expect would make us less superstitious, more scientifically minded, does exactly the opposite. It heightens and exaggerates existing superstitions. And technology, combined with this new religious movement, really causes this explosion of interest in communicating with the dead. So this is basically taking place during the time of the Civil War, which is a time when I think for the first time, and you write about this, Americans are, or, or people are able to see dead bodies, photographs of dead bodies. Talk a little bit about that technology and about what was happening, how it dovetailed with the Civil War. The fascinating thing is that before the Civil War, spiritualism seemed to have had its moment, had peaked in the 1850s and was on, its de on the decline. But during the Civil War, when 750,000 Americans are, are killed, um, there is this intense interest in communicating with the other side. And there's also this intense interest in seeing um, the, the real implications, the, the grittiness of war. And it just so happened that tech, the technology of photography by that point had reached the point where it was possible for photographers to roll out onto battlefields in their uh, mobile photo studios and to take images of the casualties of war. So most um, significantly, Matthew Brady, the great iconic Civil War photographer, enlisted a stable of other very accomplished photographers to go out into battlefields and to record these images of the dead. Uh, Brady sent photographers to the Battle of Antietam and then had a photo exhibit in New York City showing the corpses uh, from the body, mostly the Confederate dead. And this was such a revelation to people in New York who would read the accounts of battles and read the lists of names. But for the first time, they saw the faces and they saw the true carnage. So photography really, uh, at that moment, became a way that Americans were experiencing the war in, as they had never had before. How did that influence their reactions to the war? Well, when you read accounts of, for example, the the photo displays that Matthew Brewer would put on in New York City, it became much more real, it seems. Um, there is a famous review of, of Brady's display, which he called... Um, images of the war from Antietam. And in the New York Times, this review opens with uh, this um, apocalyptic vision of of the dead being brought and strewn across Broadway. And it makes the point that it's easy just to talk about the war and the war dead. But if the dead were strewn across the sidewalk as you were walking down, you would not think of them in, in quite the same way. So it really brought the reality of war home for Americans in, in a whole new way. But some of those photographs were also what we would now consider doctored or falsified. The photographers rearranged bodies or set the scene. How did that influence how people understood the documentary notion of, of photographs and kind of set the stage for frauds like Mumler? Well, the the photographers you're referring to are Matthew Brady, um, took part in some of this creation of fraudulent images. Uh, most notoriously, it was photography named Alexander Gardner, who starts off in Brady's employ, but then goes off on his own. And in some ways, it's the competition for images among these photographers that leads them to start moving bodies around on the, on the battlefield. 
But we also need to remember that most of these men were trained as painters, in fact. So when they switched to photography, they had the same ideas about image composition and what would make an attractive uh, photograph uh, and really what would make a sellable photograph because they were trying to create images that would be sold. Um, And so they're dealing with an art that did not have at the time, because of its newness, it did not have the same ethical rules that we assume today. Um, The ethics of photojournalism that we take for granted today, they simply did not exist because the technology was, was so new. And it was only through the work of later scholars that we know that some of the frauds that they were perpetrating. At the time, when people saw these images, they had no sense that this was happening, even though in Alexander Gardner's photographs, for example, you can see um, one body, a, a Confederate dead soldier, in one position, and then in another photograph, you can see the same man in another position, and Gardner would wander the battlefields as he took his, these pictures with props, because he knew they would make better pictures if he would have a rifle on the ground next to the body, whereas by that point, there were no rifles left around. They had all been carried off for, for the next battle. So we only know with, with hindsight what these photographers were doing, and it shed some light on what Mumler was doing as well, because the idea of what a hoax was uh, with as far as photography was concerned was very new. Um, the, the dividing line between fact and fiction and the corruption of a photograph uh, was only then being created. So... Tell us about how Mumler got into doing the kind, taking the kind of photographs he, he did take and that he became known for. Mumler starts off in Boston as a silver engraver, uh, but also working a bit on the side selling homemade rem- remedies for dyspepsia. So he's kind of a, a chemical tinkerer, and he begins to spend time in a photo studio um, run by a, a woman who he becomes um, romantically attached to, but also sort of, as, as he describes it, magnetically attached to. She's what was, she was known as a magnetic healer. And he ultimately, they ultimately become married. And it, it is through her, his association with her as a, as a medium who believes she can speak to the dead and also heal people with uh, animal magnetism, they called it at the time, that Mumler begins taking these photographs. The story that he tells is that his first spirit photograph, the first time he looked at a glass plate, which is how photographs were taken at the time, and saw the image of a spirit, it was entirely unintentional, as he tells the story. He was just taking a test, a test image as he was teaching himself the art of photography. Uh, he stood in front of the camera himself, and when he developed the image, he saw not only himself, uh, but a ghostly young girl seated behind, beside him. And he recognized this girl as a cousin of his who had died a few years before. And he was so surprised by this, again, according to his telling, that he showed it off as a kind of novelty. And it was only when the local spiritualist community in Boston really took this as evidence of their beliefs that his, um, that his business selling these images re- really took off. And the fascinating thing is that when he begins this in 1862, there, there's considerable interest and newspaper stories began to be written about it around the country. But it was really the local spiritualists in Boston who said, well, we believe that this might be possible, but we don't believe necessarily that Mumler is the one who's able to do this. We're not really sure about these pictures. And so it was the skepticism of of true believers that caused him for time to shut down in Boston and, and to find another place to try to sell these images. And that's when he moves to New York uh, later in the 1860s, and he comes um, more in contact with uh, the legal side of perpetrating this fraud on the public. The image he's best known for is a photo of Mary Todd Lincoln with her husband's hands on her six years after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. How did he pull that off and how did he convince people it was real? Mary Todd Lincoln was a, a spiritualist. Uh, she she believed in um, the ability to communicate with the dead, particularly after her son died in the White House. Uh, they, there were rumors rampant that the Lincolns were holding seances for Mary Todd Lincoln to try to communicate with their dead son, Willie. Uh, there were various mediums who, who were actively trying to court Mary Todd Lincoln as one of their acolytes, as, one, as someone who would choose them to be their particular medium. 
And at some point, Mary Todd Lincoln heard about William Mumler's practice in Boston. Uh, she, according to some reports, visited him before Abraham Lincoln's death in hopes of having an image of her son, and then returned to him after Lincoln's death and had this image taken uh, of herself seated with the ghostly image of, of Abraham Lincoln standing behind her with her arms around her. And uh, she was a true believer that this image truly depicted what Mumler said it was, that she was present in his studio and the, the dead president was there with them as well, and he was able to capture both of them. So he, Mumler himself did not need to do much uh, publicity about this image. Mary Todd Lincoln did it herself. She carried it with her and told all her friends about it and, tru and truly believed in it. And as to how it was done at the time, no one could really figure out how Mumler was pulling this off. We look at these images now and we're so used to photo manipulation, to the idea that you can add layer upon layer of other images to, to an original. But at the time, again, this art was so new that it was, um, it was beyond the capability of most photographers working at the time to do this kind of thing. And to do it so well that you would see portions of the Abraham Lincoln ghost image are behind Mary Todd Lincoln and portions, his arms, for example, are in front of her as if he's embracing her. So he was uh, very skilled at pulling off this kind of thing. And to untrained eyes, to eyes that were not as sophisticated as ours are in looking at photographs and wondering if they might have been manipulated, uh, it seemed perfectly believable at the time. So did he have an image of Abraham Lincoln before that he superimposed on it? That is most likely how he was able to do these kinds of things. But there is no existing image of Abraham Lincoln that that is exactly like the image he used. Um, so he may have used other techniques that were fairly common at the time. Uh, photo manipulation was used by every working photographer uh, in the 1850s and 1860s. It was usually not the creation of an entirely new image, but there was some very early forms of, of retouching. So, for example, when Mary Todd Lincoln had a portrait taken uh, by, uh, by Matthew Brady, uh, who was one of the Lincoln's favorite photographers, he went through and had, his, um, had people in his employ go back through the image and remove uh, some of her waistline, for example, to make the portrait more slimming, to make it more attractive to her. So this idea that you could manipulate a photographic image was not entirely unknown at the time. Uh, but the lengths to which or the extent to which you could create something wholly new uh, was really where Mumla was, was a pioneer. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors. And conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Peter Manso, author of The Apparitionists. The Mumler was brought to trial and prosecuted for fraud in 1869, as you mentioned, but he was acquitted. Tell us about that. His trial in New York uh, in 1869 was really, it was a trial of the century at the time. It really excited so much national attention, in, in part because this idea of communicating with the dead or seeing the dead was, was such urgent concern to so many Americans at the time. And yet there was also a movement to crack down on this growing belief in spiritualism. Uh, more established Christian churches saw spiritualism as a threat. You find reports of various churches uh, trying to root out spiritual interests, spiritualist influences from their congregations. And so there was a crusading Christian prosecutor who wanted to put Mum, uh, Mumler on trial, but also the whole idea of spiritualism. This, he thought it had gone too far, and it was Mumler presented the opportunity uh, to to debunk it. And so the prosecution brought in a number of uh, of um, luminaries of the time, experts in photography as well as in um, as in hoaxes. Uh, so they brought in, for example, P.T. Barnum as the star witness for the prosecution, 
Barnum loved a good scam, but he did not like a scam that he did not have control of. So he <laughs> had for years had been raging against spiritualists because he thought it was utter bunk. Um, but he liked to be the one. He liked to be the chief bunk master. <laughs> and so he did not want um, spiritualists selling things that, that he might sell as well. So he came in and he testified against Mumler. And uh, he was just one of many um, of major figures from the from the 1860s who, for whatever reason, decided to insert themselves into this trial uh, with nothing much to gain uh, and but just to be part of the spectacle. So what happened to Mumler after that? After Mumler was acquitted in New York uh, for reasons of, on the prosecution's part of having not been able to prove exactly how he had done it. Uh, and when the judge involved in the case handed down his ruling, he said, I, I know this is absurd. I would like it to be another way. But the fact is, it has not been proven that how Mumler did this. Uh, it has not been proven that, in fact, these are not images of ghosts. Uh, Mumler walked free, uh, but he did shut down his New York photo studio. He eventually went back to Boston. And some accounts of his life say that thereafter he died penniless and, and uh, in shame for having perpetrated this hoax. And that is really not the case, as I discovered doing the research for this book. He went on uh, as a real shapeshifter to become an innovator in other types of photography. He developed a way of printing uh, images in newspapers directly from photographs and skipping the step that was common at the time of having, you have to take a photograph to an engraver or illustrator, and they would make a copy of it, which then could be printed in a newspaper. But where Mumler came up with a process that he called the Mumler process that allowed uh, for much more streamlined movement from an original photograph to printing in the press. Uh, he was not the only one working and doing those sorts of innovations, but he certainly contributed to images becoming ubiquitous and necessary in the press, so much so that images begin to become the the um, primary proof that something has happened. Uh, if you don't see an image, you, you're less likely to believe it. So it's this irony of Mumler's story that's uh, really one of the 19th century's most notorious falsifier of images plays this role in images becoming um, something that's a guarantor of, of fact. Uh, so he was able to have some success with that later in life. And in fact, by the time he died in his obituary, that was mainly what, what the focus was, that he had, had invented this Mumler process. And only in passing does it mention that earlier in his career, he was known for his spirit photographs. <laughs> and so at the time, he had been mostly forgiven, though history now remem remembers him as this notorious fraud. You've drawn a lot of parallels between what was happening at the time and modern day. So tell us a little bit more about that. Dig into that. We're still dealing with many of the same concepts with photo manipulation, with um, people believing what they want to believe, and then looking for even doctored evidence to bolster it. How, how did those parallels come up in the course of your work? Well, it seems to me that the, these periods we go through uh, in American history of really intense technological change are, are very unsettling. Uh, and they're unsettling in such a way that as a culture, we begin to have a difficulty um, telling fact from fiction, distinguishing uh, manipulated images from, from things that, that are genuine. And you look back at the 19th century to these moments that set the stage for the Mumler story. So, for example, uh, the great wonder of the age is the telegraph, uh, popularized by Samuel Morse. Uh, it becomes a metaphor that spiritualists use to popularize their own, um, their movement. And so spiritualists begin to um, take scientific developments, technological advances, and they say, see what is possible and imagine now what is possible very soon, what yet will come. And this was a defense that was made of Mumler's photographs by his attorney, in fact, that photography uh, was able to see the world in a, in a way beyond what the human eye could see. So, of course, it was going to, if it would capture details that we would miss if we just of course, it might see things that are hidden to the naked eye. So it seems to me we are in a similar moment now with technology advancing so quickly. The way in which we process information and the sheer amount of information we have to process has caused this, uh, this challenge to 
understanding fact from fiction. It, it's made it more difficult to understand when we are dealing with the genuine. So it, substituting the Internet uh, for the telegraph and photography, uh, the story of the 19th century and how uh, technology disrupted belief uh, is very similar to what we're going through now um, with this idea uh, of rampant fake news and fa fake news becoming a charge made against stories you don't necessarily agree with, as well as just being uh, a new term for propaganda. It, it's the ways in which information are being distributed and the speed with which they're being distributed is a real, um, it's a mirror for these moments that created the Mumler phenomenon to begin with. So in, in writing the book, I, I did want to tell a story that was very much of the moment. I wanted to capture the details of the 1860s and the rise of photography uh, and the, the nation in mourning at the time. But all the time I was telling that story, it was becoming more and more um, eerie how much it felt of, of a moment for today as well. So can you predict our future by looking at the past? How did people move out of that period of being so intensely unsettled by technology and sort of come to grips with it? I think in the future, we will look back or, or our descendants will look back and and wonder how in the world we were fooled by so many of the things uh, that we are fooled by online now. Um, just as we look back and we see, we can't imagine how someone could have looked at Mumler's images and believed that it was truly um, uh, the departed soul returned to the room where the photograph is being taken. We, it really takes a leap of imagination to understand how they could have believed that with the intensity that, that they did. And I... I hope and believe that in the future, when we look back at this moment where we are in now, it, all the all of the um, the hoaxes and uh, the deceptions that we're exposed to now will seem readily apparent, and we will have uh, grown more sophisticated about these technological advances that are challenging the, the ways we understand fact and fiction. Um, and ideally, uh, we will rise above this moment and be able to recognize what we've been through. So you are the religion curator at the National Museum of American History. Uh, and your previous books, uh, Rag and Bone and One Nation Under Gods, touch on religious theme. Um, what's the connection for you between Mumler religion or, or this book and the uh, previous ones? Well, my uh, last big book, uh, One Nation Under Gods, uh, told a, a history of America from the point of view of minority religious traditions. So basically, every generation from um, from early in the 1500s until uh, early in the 21st century, I tried to find a story of influence of minority beliefs on American culture and tried to make the case that it's not always, um, it is not only, the story of religion in America is not only the story of, of Christianity in its various forms, that these other competing and conflicting beliefs have played a significant role in creating our national religious culture. So after I finished that book, I looked back at it and realized that there was this sort of a hole uh, in the latter part of the 19th century, just after the Civil War, and also that I hadn't dealt with spiritualism at all. And spiritualism was a major religious movement in the 19th century. Some suggest that a third or even a half of Americans had some spiritualist inclinations at, at the time. And realizing that I had left it out of the story, I began to wonder how I might tell it. What was the what was a compelling way to present that history? And at a certain point, I, I crossed paths with, with Mumler, um, mainly through uh, newspaper archives, because so much of my research for all of my books has just been going through newspaper archives and looking for interesting stories um, as they were written or originally uh, in the press of of the 18th or 19th century. So that was really what led uh, to this book. It was one book leading to another in a very clear way. And only when I began writing it did I, did I begin to realize that it felt like a very timely story. It wasn't really merely a, a, a curiosity piece. It was something that could say quite a lot about where I think we are now in terms of um, advances of technology and the changing, changing shape of American religion. 
What was your research process like beyond going through those newspaper archives? Were there other sources that you had access to, perhaps, uh, due to your work with the museum? Well, I did a lot of, um, because I'm an occasional journalist, I like to go places and, and, and be in in spaces where, where events happen. So I did a lot of uh, Civil War battlefield research, for example, for the sections of the book that deal with the Civil War photographers, Matthew Brady, Alexander Gardner. Uh, so being in those spaces was very important to me. And, and that also led to my most hands-on research was that I actually went back and I learned the 19th century uh, photographic process, what's called the wet plate uh, photography process, where you pour various chemicals onto a plate of glass and put it into a an old-fashioned camera and expose it to light and then develop it. So I was at the battlefield of Antietam, ran into this fellow who sets up a tent and you can pose, you can put on your Civil War costumes and he'll take an old-fashioned tintype of you. Uh, and I was able to learn the process from him. I took an intensive class with him to learn how Mumler, how Matthew Brady, how Alexander Gardner would have actually been taking pictures. So to really get inside the um, the more technical aspects of it was at least as important as any of the archival or historical research that I was doing. What's the value of that for you? How does that influence how you write your book? Well, because it's... It, the, the book itself, it tries to, to recreate those moments of creation. I, I wanted to bring the reader, I wanted to create for the reader um, the feeling of, of the novelty of looking at a photograph for the first time. And if you imagine back at that moment, um, until that moment, unless you had the means to hire a portrait painter uh, to make an image of of your relative before they passed on. Um, as soon as someone died, your memory of them began to fade. And with the advent of photography and with the popularization of photography, suddenly everyone could have this, this way of holding on uh, to, to people who had passed on. So it was this real magical moment. And so to get inside the how that magic happened uh, and to go through the process, it really does seem, seem like magic. The, the idea that you can put some various chemicals on a piece of glass, expose it to sunlight, and suddenly this this image uh, begins to appear in, in all its detail. So to capture something of that magic for the reader and to put the reader in the place of experiencing that as, as a novel reality, it was important to me to understand exactly how it happened so I could describe um, which chemicals were used, how long it needed to be exposed to light, what the sensation was of posing for a photograph, when you needed to expose an image for 20 or 30 seconds and you weren't able to move or close your eyes. So to recreate that level of reality for creating these images was, was an important part of the story for me. We've been talking with Peter Manso, and you can find his book, The Apparitionists, in stores right now. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. My great pleasure. Thank you both. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed talks about New York Comic Con. Stay tuned. This is David Friend, the author of The Naughty 90s, The Triumph of the American Libido, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed is here to tell us all about New York Comic Con. That's Comic Con, two words, Comic Con. Hello, Calvin. Hi there. Hello. <laughs> Welcome from uh, Nerd World. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> these, these hyphens absolutely matter. So. They certainly do. Um, so how was New York's Comic Space Con? Uh, bigger. And you know what? I have to say better than ever. And with an emphasis on the bigger only because it's gotten really big. Uh, they sold 200,000 tickets Wow! to this year's New York Comic Con. Just ended um, October 8th. Mm -hmm. um, There's 180,000 last year. That's pretty big. But this year, uh, actually, they eliminated three-day and four-day passes mm -hmm. uh, for the simple act of fairness, just to give more people an opportunity to get in. You know, people buy three-day passes. After sensory overload of the first two, you know, they don't come back. Somebody can't buy a ticket and get in. So the number we're seeing there, I guess that's maybe a lot actual closer to, you know, 
a real sense of how many people are coming. That's amazing. Yeah. No, it pretty much is. Now, it's not just a Javits Center event, though, believe me, the Javits Center is crammed, packed. And if you go to the website, Mm -hmm. publishersweekly.com slash comics, (laughs) you can see photos. And um, But uh, the the event, as most of these megacons, as we've taken to call them, or media cons, since comics are, are an important part, but only a part. Um, they're really spread to the areas around these convention centers, in many cases just for about for basic safety. They, 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 there's so many people that want to get in. Uh, there's so many people that can't get in. Uh, you can actually, certainly in San Diego is that way, and, and New York is becoming that way. You can actually have a New York Comic Con experience without ever setting foot inside of the Javits Center. So it's really spread to venues around there, uh, around it, including for the first time this year, New York Public Library, mm-hmm. the historic building on Fifth Avenue hosted a day of programming aimed at um, teachers and librarians. And actually, it was really a fabulous. They had panels. They opened up the special collections. They've got original pages from Mouse, you know, Art Spiegelman's masterpiece. I mean, and they're going to do more, even more next year. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, the idea for Reed Pop, the organizer uh, uh, of the whole event, is really to make it a New York City event. Well, so there is. Are we developing like a Comic Con village around the Javits? The well, way- if indeed it was habitable around the Javits mm-hmm. Center, that would probably be the case. Certainly, if you go to San, Di- San Diego, that is in- indeed what is happening. I mean, it's not unusual, and I mean, you you do it at New York Comic Con, but it's not unusual at San Diego to sort of pop out and go into the areas around, and get some lunch, do some shopping, go right back. You know, it's it, it's coming there with the Hudson Yards development area, and the fact that there's a subway station now across. It the makes street. such a big oh, yes. difference. It's tr- it's transformative. Uh, it, it actually makes going to Javits moderately pleasant. I mean, this the the the, uh, the journey there. Uh, but right now, it's still pretty rough. There's a few places, but I think at some point you will see that it will be a Comic Con village. So, what were some of the biggest attractions for you? Well, um, the biggest attractions for me um, were obviously some of the comic book launches. I will say, uh, because we are a trade publication, uh, the the show kicks off every year with a a kind of a a mini trade conference uh, organized by uh, ICV2.com, the pop culture trade news website. And the, the, the themes change every year. This year it was called Insider Sessions. And uh, and I'm going to actually have a piece about this uh, in the uh, print magazine. But uh, my piece is going to call Comics Shops versus Bookshops, uh, Bookstores, mm-hmm. you know, the race to sell graphic novels. Basically, what the, um, the, uh, um, the conference was about was basically what Milton Greep, the CEO of ICV2, who does an annual uh, look at the size and trends of the graphic novel market, says what we're seeing is – is a um, a channel power flip uh, from the traditional sellers of comics in America, the, the comic shop market, also known as the direct market. We're seeing now, as with the rise of the book format, i.e., the graphic novel, we and the launch of you know trade book comics imprints, as well as comics publishers who understand that books are where their market is going. We're seeing the rise of bookstores as being um, not only a significant place to buy graphic novels, but as he puts it in in terms of this channel power flip, um, we're heading for uh, a change in where we go to buy our comics, where we think about comics, primarily because of um, a lot of historical problems in how they sell content in the uh, comic shop market. And also because of a new generation of younger fans who uh, expect a wider variety of comics than superhero comics, which is what the direct market was designed to sell. Right. It sells many more kinds of comics now, but it's still its primary focus and how it does its business and its most business very often is in with superhero periodical comics. Mm-hmm. With the with the understanding that this is changing, and there are comic shops that do see themselves, especially bookstores, 
and really have embraced both of the formats. So are people who want to go for uh, uh, superhero comics, are, are they still going to their local comic shop oh, or sure. are they going to bookstores instead thinking that, you know, they could get the, the local, de- you know, the, the, the most recent Batman comic, but also go for a different kind of for a graphic novel? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, what you're seeing now, uh, I mean, what we're seeing now in the American and uh, the North American comic book market is an incredible expansion, incredible diversity. Uh, I mean, in many ways, while this channel flip may be challenging to the comic shop market, it's outstanding in many ways for the consumer. There is more places to buy, more ways to buy comics and more different kinds of comics than mm-hmm. ever before. Uh, so, yes. You're finding, uh, you know, people like uh, you and me who grew up with our superhero and our Batman and our Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. Uh, you know, yeah, we still like to pop into the local comic shop on Wednesday, see what's new. They also sell books now, so uh, and, the, and the smart ones sell a lot of books. On the other hand, there's a younger generation that grew up on manga uh, and women. Uh, comic shops have not always been the most inviting places for women. Um, there's a mentality that we're still working through very often uh, that can be a little bit hostile to new kinds of content, indeed hostile or perceived to be hostile to new kinds of fans. Um, there, uh, you know, there was actually a kind of an unfortunate incident at New York Comic Con at a retailer uh, a presentation platform for Marvel where some retailer, unfortunately, got up and uh, loudly expressed his distaste for Marvel's new uh, black, female, and gay versions of his traditional characters. Um, Yes, unfortunately, that goes on. There was pushback from the Marvel executives as well as other retailers, but that's, that's out there in the real world. And also, this is a big issue online uh, in a lot of the troubling behavior that goes on. Um, right. You know, if you express any interest in diversity in comics online. Right. So, but that said, there are really good comic shops. And then there are kind of, you know, Simpsons comic book guy comic shops. Right. Uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, we're seeing um, uh, people, well, for instance, older fans like you and me who like, yeah, we like our comic stuff. But you know what? It's also nice to get it in book format. Uh, it's also right. nice to get, maybe we buy the first issue. See if we like it, and we wait till the book collection comes out, and we can sit down and have the whole thing. You know, have mm-hmm. a have a three hundred pages of comics instead right. of twenty four. Uh, young people who maybe just don't go in the comic shops, more interested in manga. Um, you know, bookstores. So I yes. Well, I feel like in the science fiction and mystery specialty markets, I've seen those specialty shops struggling and closing. New York used to have quite a number of specialty shops and this is a market you think would support them and uh, a lot of them have shut their doors so uh, are you seeing anything like that or concerns about that in the comics specialty market yeah i mean we're seeing um well i mean in many ways comic shops uh uh, uh, like independent bookstores seem to have stabilized Mm -hmm. a little bit but i mean part of the discussion at um insider sessions was that traffic seems to be down um, and once again, there's a whole, there's whole groups of consumers that won't set foot inside of comic shops led by women mm. primarily. Um, now that once again, this is changing. There are more women working in comic shops. I did a panel at San Diego with some of the most, um, innovative, uh, visionary direct market comics shop, uh, retailers you'd ever want to meet. And, and, and both of the, the people on my panel were women. They've got a very different uh, kind of store. Mm. Uh, I know a woman says we, we make sure a woman's, uh, you know, on shift, uh, every shift. Uh, so we make sure that people feel comfortable and invited. Uh, and so we're in a transitional period. I think one of the themes that came out of Insider Sessions uh, from Milton was that, yeah, it doesn't look good right now, but this channel has gone through a lot of changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't panic. Uh, we're going to get through this. Retailers are going to learn. We're getting a younger generation that uh, wants to do the uh, uh, wants to have a different kind of comic shop. So things are changing. What were some of the other highlights of Comic Con for you? Well, let's see. Well, I mentioned uh, the Marvel low light, but Marvel had a highlight too. They also um, had a um, uh, they have a new show, a new TV show based on one of their properties, uh, Runaways. Really great strip. 
uh, originally written by uh, Brian K. Vaughn, but it's uh, the story of a bunch of uh, super-powered teenagers who actually suddenly discovered that their parents may be actually super-villains. So that turned out to be be really popular. Uh, Let's see. Um, DC uh, launched a new series called Doomsday Clock that's actually based on Alan Moore's uh, superhero epic Watchmen. So it's a new series. They're sort of integrating Moore's characters in the mainstream DC superhero universe, which is going to be interesting. Moore, of course, is famously hostile to adaptations and sequels to his work, but DC owns the rights to them because it's a work for hire world. Mm. Uh, that said, and there's, sometimes there's fan pushback against this, but the fact is people love these characters, uh, and DC is doing a big push for it. Also really important. DC is relaunching Milestone Media, and for those of you who may not know, this was a co-publishing venture. Milestone Media is an African-American-owned superhero publishing line that was launched in the 1990s, functioned for several years. For a variety of reasons, it shuttered around 1993-94. The original uh, founders are bringing it back in conjunction with DC. They're launching it with a mixture of old and new characters, so that was very exciting. Uh, European graphic novels. Uh, New York Comic Con is also a big platform for international creators. So um, two two ventures. Uh, well, one is not a venture. Uh, the French Comics Association, which is a trade group, and Europe Comics, which is a digital venture and basically licensing mm-hmm. uh, venture. They both had a full range of signings and panels really showing off uh, European graphic novels in the U.S. in translations, which have had a big rise. Um, this is also a part of the changing retail scene that we're seeing in the U.S. because there's, there's a much more of demand for a broader variety of kind right. of multi-genre comics marketplace. And European graphic novels uh, are supplying that. Mm. So there's that. I mean, I could go on and on. Am I leaving something out? I'm certain that I am. Oh, Lion Forge, a really a fast expanding uh, independent publisher, was launching uh, a slate of independent graphic novels. In fact, we did an interview with um, uh, this one author, Katie Green, who has a book called Lighter Than My Shadow, kind of about uh, eating disorders mm-hmm. and how she recovered. Uh, they've got a comic, uh, excuse me, a kids comics line uh, that's launching a lot of new works. Uh, and they have a new multicultural, what they call science fiction superhero comic book line called Catalyst uh, Prime. I did an interview also with um, one of the senior editors over there. So there's a lot of exciting stuff. Image, uh, Image Comics is launching a new science fiction series by Robert Kirkman of The Walking Dead fame. Mm. It's called Oblivion's Song. And it's it's it's. Uh, a, a sort of cataclysmic, it's a story of a cataclysmic tragedy where 300,000 residents of Philadelphia are whisked to an alternative universe. And we're, everyone's trying to figure out what's going on. But it's in a universe full of monsters. So uh, I could go on and on, um, but you get the idea. There's far more stuff going on than I'm even. I've, I've just scratched the surface. Sounds great. And is that Fantagraphics t-shirt from the... Uh... No, no, it's not. But it's a free commercial for Fantagraphics, one of our foremost <laughs> independent comics publishers. But And actually, Fantagraphics was not at the show this year. I mean, it is... New York Comic Con, um, while there are small indies, uh, indie houses there, some of the indie houses do question whether it's a show for them. If you do, if you're a small press house focusing on literary graphic novels, uh, which which Fantagraphics does, eh, you know, maybe you don't come every year. Mm, right. You know. Just cost prohibitive. Well, it's cost prohibitive. New York is cost prohibitive. Right. The show is cost prohibitive. It's, many people feel that it's not, uh, the fans that go there are not their market, uh, particularly since these shows, as I call them, media cons. They really draw fans across the range of pop culture. Yes, yeah. comics are important, but also are movies, gaming, right. TV shows. Yeah. Uh, so shows like SBX, Mocha here in New York, Cab, which is coming up in December, which are really publishing comic shows, often people wait and say, you know what? I'm going to go and you know show my books in Brooklyn right. instead. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Calvin. It's always great to get your recaps. It's uh, my pleasure to read more comics. <laughs> <laughs> and now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, 
I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another fascinating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 